Welcome to the See Me Be Me podcast. I'm Nile Henry. And I'm Blair Henry. And we're two brothers who set out on a mission to make motorsport and STEM careers more diverse, affordable, and inclusive. We are the founders of The Blair Project. This podcast series delves into the minds of inspirational individuals who come from ordinary and often humble backgrounds, but through their belief, dogged determination and never give up attitude, I managed to overcome academic, social or mental challenges to achieve their dream careers. Our guests will share their life lessons that you too can apply to your own. We hope their stories will inspire you to go further, aim higher and accept nothing less than you deserve. Your ambition, your purpose is all within and we're here to help you unlock it. The planet of possibilities are endless. So on today's episode, we are joined by Elsa Sikeng, who is a scientist, an entrepreneur, and a policy advocate. She has a PhD in infectious disease, and she is a global health and founder of Soccer Data, a startup with a vision to increase diversity in clinical trials. Elsa has been championed as one of the most inspiring, prominent and influential black voices in UK tech. Today we'll be discussing Elsa's journey as an entrepreneur, her ambitions for the future with her newly set up company Soccer Data and some of her greatest achievements throughout her career and work. So without further ado, let's get started. And welcome to the See Me Be Me podcast, Elsa. Thank you very much, Niall and Blair. Great to be here. Excellent, excellent. So first question we'd like to ask uh, to our guests is, can you tell everybody who you are, what's your background, and how did you get onto the journey that you are now? That's uh, many questions in one, Niall. Um, so my name is Dr. Elsa Zakang. I introduced myself as a scientist. I sit at the intersection of science, entrepreneurship, and policy. Um, I have a PhD in infectious diseases and global health. I have worked with organizations like the WHO, the European Commission, um, the UK cabinet, Prime Minister's Cabinet, and I continue to work with quite a few of these organizations. Um, I've been in entrepreneurship since 2014 with different organizations, and we can get into that later on. And um, yeah, I started on this journey as a scientist, and here I am now collating the words of science, entrepreneurship, and policy. And so growing up, who were some of, if you're going back to, take us back to the younger Elsa, who were your major role models like for you to become a, a scientist? That's an interesting question because um, I came from a family where my dad is a scientist, my mom is at science and my sister went down the route of science. And so being in science was almost inevitable but I always say that in school growing up it was no there was no moment specifically when I thought oh my god I love science so much it literally was just because I was not good at geography I could not get history for the life of me I did not get English lit so by virtue of elimination biology came natural to me chemistry made sense and so I went down the science science route so here we are so yeah and and so even after you obviously went to school, you knew you wanted to do science and went to college. What was the education system like? Because we we bought brought uh, we brought up here or we brought up uh, outside of the UK. Sure. So let's take it a step back then. Um, I was born in Leeds in the UK. Went back to Cameroon mm -hmm. where I grew up till the age of fourteen, fifteen. 
So I went to a secondary school in Cameroon called Our Lady of Lords. Um, in Cameroon, it was a boarding school, probably one of the best at the time. It probably still is. And um, I then left Cameroon at age 15 to come to the UK, where I did my A-levels um, at another boarding school in Reading called Queen Anne School. The theme here, by the way, is that I was in an all-girl boarding school for seven years. Clearly, my parents were like, yeah, stay away from the boys. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that the theme, actually, which I did not learn until much later on when I was at university sitting on a panel at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, was that um, I remember this panel, there were about four of us um, women who were at least at the level of PhD in science. And we looked around and all of us had gone to all-girl boarding schools. And then someone had asked a question from the audience that um, apparently there's a correlation between girls staying in science and technology and engineering and math and girls going to all-girl boarding school. And at the time, I did not know this. This was probably, what, 2012 or 2013 that I heard of the study. And then after that, I went back and researched it, and it actually is a thing. And the whole concept is that when um, in adolescent years, teenage years, when you're growing up, the in mixed schools, the boys can be a bit um, louder and can tease yeah. you a little bit more. And so the girls might feel a bit more shy or than wanting to stay within the STEM STEM fields. But then obviously when you're in an all-girl boarding school, you don't have that, right? And you're sort of treated equally throughout. And so I just thought that that was very interesting, right? So I came from a space from being cocooned really within my family setting where I yeah. had role models, I saw science all around me to then going into a community setting and an education system, which was, again was perfect, was a perfect setting for me to stay in, um, in, STEM, in STEM and then going into university. So it was only later on and now really that I realized that I basically was set up to stay in STEM, like, I don't know, by virtue of um, my upbringing and the school systems that I went to. And I think that's something that is very key as we continue to talk about representation in STEM, girls staying in STEM, um, increasing that um, that zeal for women to want to actually stay and pursue the sciences to the highest level. Um, it starts from a very, very young age. Yeah. And the, now that, that, look, just one, one point. No, that was that's very interesting what you said, Elsa, because I've spoken to other ladies in the world of STEM who've said a similar thing that they've gone to a boarding school or an all-girls school, and that's been almost the trajectory of women coming into STEM. And I think, you know, within mixed schools, it is like, you know, I don't know what it is about the system. Maybe it's from teachers say, you know, guys go and do, you know these sorts of things and girls go and do this and sometimes girls are put away from doing whether it's science or engineering so that's that's kind of a, an interesting an interesting thing so for you do you think there's any way that we can encourage more girls into into stem in mixed in mixed schools well how, how do we how do we break down those barriers Absolutely. I think that it's a mix, going to be a mixed effort, right? So that could be after school clubs. But then I also think that it's something for the teachers to really just pay attention to, right? Yeah. And just because a girl is not shooting her hand up um, at the first, at the question to answer the question, that does not mean that she doesn't know the answer. Maybe she might know it. Maybe she's a bit timid. Maybe she's scared of what if it's a wrong answer? The boys will tease me, right? And at that point is the teacher's responsibility to sort of set the tone of the room and make sure that everyone knows that it's okay and also encourage um everyone to sort of come up and speak up and if there's specific um individuals who can constantly 
are quick to answer probably give someone else the opportunity right so i think it's yes within we can do a lot of added activities after school clubs um, i'm on the board for the science and industry museum having to encourage um girls to come into the to the museum and create a safe space for them to be able to share their interests but i think um within the school system it's yeah. setting that tone so i was going to ask uh, elsa just as a follow-up as you're a black woman working in the field of STEM, do you feel that you've had to overcome quite a few barriers to pursue a career in this uh, in this sector? Sure, I would say that initially I never quite thought about it because, again, as I've set the whole setup throughout, that I never it wasn't something that specifically crossed my mind. Yeah. But I would say that when I did my BSc, so I did my BSc in molecular biology with the year in industry. Yeah. And my year in industry, I worked at a biotech company um, based out in Manchester. And I am still extremely close with um, the founders. And I actually had lunch with one of them a couple of months back. Um, the whole company, I was the only woman and only black woman and I think within the building I probably was like the only black woman and by virtue not even by virtue of that I would say that some of my biggest allies and mentors um have been white men um so I would say barriers I would not particularly call them barriers I would probably say um I was encouraged Um, And I think that my attitude whenever I went into work was always, what can I do? How can I learn? And this is not to say that other women don't um, don't have these barriers, right? But I think that because of how I was conditioned within my growing up, not being in STEM was not an option, right? It was, I didn't come in seeking the validation or seeking um, for someone to encourage me because I already had that. And that is a privilege that I understand. Um, It was just looking for allies to support me throughout that process and I was very lucky to have them. And in terms of where you are today, I mean you're currently the founder of uh, Soccer Data. Uh, Would you be able to just take us through your organization and why you set it up? Sure, so um, Soccer Data is a baby that has been brewing for a long while subconsciously and finally is coming to fruition. Um, I think as I've mentioned I'm a scientist and health equity has been the running theme through almost everything that I've done. So from the age of 16, I was working with um, UNICEF um, on um, really reaching, um, increasing communications towards specific um, diseases. But um, circuit data, I would say, was born, um, the idea was born from my PhD. So I did my PhD in infectious diseases and global health. And during my PhD, I focused on collecting biomarkers for influenza A um, diagnostics. And I, during my PhD as well, I used samples from Senegal and West Africa and samples from here in the UK, London and Liverpool. And the whole premise was very much how does genetics affect um, the biomarkers that we find? Yeah. And the premise behind that is that at the moment um, for genetic research, black gen, um, genetic data from black and ethnic minority communities come up to about 4%, whilst yeah. um, the rest is very much white European, right? And again, if the data that is being used to create medications, drugs, clinical trials, everything in between is predominantly 
or over 90% white, right? That means that our genetics are not being represented. And that definitely means that the drugs that are being created puts us at a disadvantage, right? And over COVID, um, I did quite a few different talks. And one of the interesting questions that kept coming up, which we saw in the news was, what was the clinical trial representation to black and ethnic minority communities? And it was extremely low. And we saw that with um, hesitancy to take up the COVID-19 vaccine and quite a few of these different um, reactions towards the vaccine. So SOCA data is very much set up to increase data collection, increase participation of black and ethnic minority communities within the clinical trial space. And by that, I mean pulling together that data so that companies that are developing developing drugs and are developing um, medications and vaccines can have access to that data when they are creating vaccines, medications, yeah. all, all the rest. We hear that. We, I think we've seen that in recruitment where companies have gone, we don't have access to the data or we don't know where these people live. Or we don't have all of that. And Soka Data is very much trying to bring that to the forefront and also engaging with our communities to really understand the importance of participation in clinical trials. I understand the historical um, context behind it and our yeah. resistance from black and ethnic minority communities to not want to engage but it's remembering that as long as we stay out of the engagement we see that now with AI we're literally just going to keep getting left behind because if our data is not there then AI will be trained on data that is overrepresented of white and ethnic minority um, of white um, um, demographics and yeah. then again the equities keep perpetrating um, the inequities keep perpetrating so yeah so good data is here to bridge that gap between pharma biotech companies and black and ethnic minority communities as it pertains to biomedical data and clinical trial research so you were saying um one things one of the things I found interesting was um you're saying that there was a not a not a big intake of like um black people uh, embracing clinical trials do you feel there's a so there's a fair element there and so in the reason why black people don't take part in their clinical trials oh absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. no absolutely um in may 2023 so earlier on this year we conducted a piece of research um that we engaged with black and ethnic minority communities and understanding trust and clinical trials and we heard a lot of it right and we know that there's a massive fear element which is um, in america you had a tuskegee experiment in the 90s in nigeria you had um, a vaccine um, trial that went what went on that did not that did not pass the ethical approvals um so yeah the very the many reasons why black and ethnic minority communities are um, refraining from doing from participating but I think there's also the flip side of when these things have happened there have been solutions that have been put in place to be able to ensure that they don't happen again but we don't hear about those yeah. solutions right um, that have been put in place and so um, we end up in a situation where we don't trust there's a, a massive trust element here you saw um, black communities don't trust the motives whilst why communities don't trust the competence. And I think that was a very interesting nuance. So with um, when it come, came to vaccine development, white um, demographics were saying, well, the vaccine came out quite quickly. We don't trust how it was developed. So it wasn't that they didn't trust the systems developing it, whilst black and ethnic minorities communities say, well, I don't trust the motives and I don't trust the systems developing it. They're trying to use us as guinea pigs. They're trying to, there's so many of these statements that were being made, like what happens um, if I have an adverse event? What happens if I have um, a reaction to it? So it's um, 
up to us then to shine the light on it and encourage these, com these companies to increase um, transparency, but also to engage with our communities because there are so many diseases that we face that are not being researched just because um, there is a limited amount of information around how it perpetrates within our system. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask a question in terms of that piece around, you know, in terms of the, uh, the pharma biomedical industry, was it just because they're not doing those trials on, on black people because, you know, maybe the, the industry is not as diverse and then, you know, there are too many people banging the drum about getting medication for for people who, uh, from black and ethnic minority backgrounds? Or is it just that they want to, but, you know, it is down to the motives for black communities that, like, oh, we can't trust it if it's... Uh, these new and emerging drugs like we don't know it might might have uh, side effects so do you think it is more to do with um the motives behind it like black people just not wanting to get involved in clinical trials or do you think some of it might be that the industry might not be diverse and there might not be too many people banging the drum to do medication for ethnic minorities or to trial it on ethnic minorities no absolutely i think it's absolutely both ways um, so there's a lack of diversity in terms of sponsors um, from these companies and engaging with our communities. And even when they do engage with our communities, there's a lack of trust. I think Blair and I were talking earlier on about um, when you go into schools and people see people like yourself and Niall um, having being, being successful and excelling within the space, they think, oh, yes, I can do that too. Um, within the biomedical space, if you don't see someone like yourself, there probably is an increase in mistrust or an increase in skepticism, right? Um, there are several reasons why, um, there are other reasons why pharma and biotech companies have um, stated why they've not engaged. Some of them have included that um, participation is longer, takes longer to recruit within our communities. And this is, I think, for reasons like this, you have to probably have an education piece and build that trust over time. Um, they've stated that um, our communities, when you do recruit, sometimes we don't stay on long enough. Like, um, So there's a higher dropout rate. Yeah. Um, now, reasons around that, I cannot particularly, I, I'm not too sure of that. Um, um, but I think definitely there's a lack of sponsorship um, from our communities. But then also on our flip side, right, from our communities, it's even the awareness of clinical trials, right? There's even, do we, are we aware of what is going on? Are we aware of if I had a, God forbid, but if I had a cancer today that was like specific to my genetics, would there be a medication or a clinical trial that I would be able to get onto that might give me a life-saving option? I have heard of medications that have been produced where um, they're more tolerable, more tolerance for our for people from black um, communities just because of how the medication was produced. But so I I, I mean I think it's a confluence of factors on both on both sides. So education, um, trust, mistrust, but I always say at the end of the day, the owners and the responsibility will remain on the pharmaceutical and biotech companies to be able to ensure that they engage with these communities and make sure that their um, their processes really are ones that our communities can engage with in a long-term basis. Um, and just to add to that quickly, because it's very much a regulated space, right? So the FDA um, earlier on last year actually put out a statement where they're now ensuring that pharma and biotech companies 
make sure that when they're submitting um, approvals for drugs, they actually have a specific representation for black and ethnic minority communities. So because that has now come from the top, right, these com these companies are now having to make those changes internally. So it then goes to show you that trickle down effect in terms of this is where the policy had, my policy had comes in. How are governments ensuring that this trickles down and then the private sector is ensuring that they're engaging with our communities and then we can then respond back and I say we from a community perspective as to how do we engage with these um, clinical trials. No, that's fantastic and you know it's great to see that starting to to evolve and, and, and come into shape but Elsa I want to take it back because uh, obviously we've known each other for a long time uh, especially in the world of entrepreneurship so you're one of, I'd say you know you're one of the few that you know grew up from a very early age and knew what you wanted to do. You wanted to be a scientist. You, you went through the education system, graduated, came out with PhD, uh, infectious diseases, but you're also now an entrepreneur. Where did the love of entrepreneurship come from? Um, so that came from, well, the love for entrepreneurship, I probably would say, if I have to even take it further back, so my mom is really an entrepreneur because she has a pharmacy in Cameroon. And so as, as much as she's a pharmacist, so she's a scientist by training, um, her day-to-day -day trade is running a pharmacy. So um, I grew up going to the pharmacy, doing accounts, until today I still hear her on the phone, <laughs> making sure that everything is running smoothly and uh, her business is not going down to the ground. So perhaps subconsciously, that was always in the back of my mind. But personally... I would say it sort of happened by happenstance. It was 2014. I was nine months into my PhD. I was like, okay, I love science. I do not like academia. What am I going to do with my life? That was basically my question. And um, so I went through this whole process of trying to understand what it was I was going to do with my life. And I started organizing events. That's literally how it started. Uh, engaging with biotech companies locally and um, trying to understand how do they how can we as students connect with them and seek careers outside academia so consulting medical writing and i think it was the concept or the notion that because you've done a phd you don't have to do a postdoc and you have to become a professor at uni and that was that was your track line that was it or nothing and i was like I refuse for that to be my life, so I need to find it out. And so at that time, I then eventually started um, what was what is called the Northwest Biotech Initiative, and that was the first time I was ever called an entrepreneur. And I remember thinking, "What is that? <laughs> I am just a scientist." And um, I had a co-founder called Catherine, and she was based in the University of Manchester, and she was doing her PhD as well. And we were going down the same track. And over the course of the next three to four years that followed, we gained sponsorship um, and we raised about, uh, under my management, I like to say, under the time that we were managing it, raised about £5,500, which at the time was good money considering that we had nothing and um, we were just these students sort of trying to figure out what we could do. And um but then life really happened, which was I had to finish my PhD, right? <laughs> like I still had a PhD to do and I could not run NBI um, per se as a business. And I also could not drop out because my visa depended on this, <laughs> on me doing my PhD. So um, yeah, so that was the first goal at entrepreneurship. So I then had to step down from running it and 
NBI still runs still today. It's in its 10th year. It's quite wild to think that we started something 10 years ago that is still going. And I think to date, over 30 students have gone on to gain jobs, internships, full-time positions outside of academia. Um, thank you. And um, I went up and saw the team earlier on this year and continue having conversations with them and seeing how they can continue developing it. And so, yeah, that was the that was the first bit. And I think after that, I thought, oh, this entrepreneurship thing, I like it. <laughs> Let's see what else we can build. So, yeah. I wanted to just um, go back through, this is from about eight years ago, uh, Elsa. I was reading uh, from your bio that um, you worked alongside the World Health Organization during like the outbreak of the Ebola virus back in 2015. And I believe you had to, was it spend six weeks in Guinea? Yes, was it during the uh, during the uh, the outbreak. So could you take us through that experience and like some of the challenges that you faced? I can't believe that's been eight years now. <laughs> Good Lord. It feels like it was just yesterday. Um, sure. So it's 2015. I'm doing my PhD at the University of Liverpool. Um, the lab that I was in specifically focused on respiratory diseases. So we did influenza, Ebola, MERS, yeah. and COVID, actually. And um, the outbreak happens. Um, my supervisor has partnerships with Public Health England and the WHO. And the WHO sends out... Um, I guess a recruitment form which says that they want scientists who would volunteer to deploy and go out to Guinea um, and support the the outbreak and that is from a scientific perspective so diagnosis and all the rest of that and so I volunteer and go through this training process and eventually get shipped out to Guinea uh, where we spend six weeks working 12 to 14 hour days seven wow. days a week um Gosh. testing samples for Ebola and malaria. And our biggest fear was that we were going to get Ebola. Um, and that was the whole point, just make sure you don't contract Ebola. I think I was prepared for the physical toll it was going to take on my body. I was not prepared for the emotional toll um, because you, you're you literally at the front line. And when I say literally at the front line, we our diagnostic lab was again in the middle of nowhere so you're working in a low resource setting and it wasn't fancy buildings as maybe you might think in public health england think literally structures put up in wood covered and made sure that they're sterilized and so we were let's say stating standing at maybe a hundred meters to the tent of the people who had ebola and uh, so you could see doctors going in, in and out every day with their hazmat suits, trying to take care of them. You could see when people died and passed away um, and having to be taken to be incinerated because they could not bury bodies because the incinerator was literally right next to it. So I remember coming out a few times and just throwing up because I that emotional toll I was not ready for. But I would say it's an experience that completely changes you. There are quite a few things that I saw on ground that um, led to me coming back and campaigning for partnership or equal partnership in uh, in the global between the global north and the global south because of quite a few incidents that happened on ground because we were attacked almost at gunpoint and uh, at that point we thought. We came out here thinking we we're going to, we may die from Ebola, but it seems like that may not be the case. We might actually get killed, oh. actually killed. So, yeah, it was a very, very interesting experience, to say the least, but one I would not trade for anything. And, um, it, yeah, it changes you in ways that you cannot come back from. 
And I saw as a result, um, well, as a result for your workout in uh, Guinea during the Ebola outbreak, that you received a medal from um, the Queen, the Queen herself. Yeah. So how did it feel to be awarded by royalty? I mean, it was very rewarding. I think it was very, um, it was, it was a nice acknowledgement of our efforts. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Um, but I think that by the time that that happens, it's so much has happened. Like you can imagine the story that I've just told, right. Um, you understand or try, you get a glimpse into what war veterans may feel like when they come back and yeah, it's yeah. their nice accolades, but there's that feeling and impression that just never leaves you. So, yeah. Really? And just going into like, just like the success that you've had as an entrepreneur, as being a, a black woman working in tech, you've received a lot of praise um, for some of the work that you've done in your career. Like you've been in the top 50 most inspiring black voices by Tech Nation. And I believe you were seen as an agent of change from the Northern Power Women as well. So, what is it like to be championed by all these uh, big organizations? I think something that I always say, right, is that, interestingly enough, I really don't live for the applause. It's nice, but it's something that I I literally go, oh, that was nice. Thank you. It's a lovely evening. And it's uh, we all dress up and you, you know what yeah. the awards are like, guys. Like we, yeah, you've been yeah, quite yeah. a few of them, right? Um and it's a lovely evening, it's a nice recognition, and it makes your CV look shiny, right? But I think as for me, it's always been, what is the work that you use those awards and those accolades to do? And for me, for each new accolade and each new praise, it's more responsibility for me. It's more so, how am I going to use that to champion the work that I'm doing further, to increase diversity, to increase representation, to hold companies accountable, to hold government accountable? How does this um, new credibility because that's what it is really it just gives you gives your work credibility gives you this added layer of credibility and it's a nice feeling but it's um how do you then use that um to feed back into the work that we've continued to do and i think you guys for example are an example of people who have completely com continue to do that day in day out right you continue to raise that bar in yeah. terms of i've been given this great so how do we push it further and i think it's almost it's the same for me so so Elsa, entrepreneur, scientist, public speaker, board member and trustee, what does, for our audience, what does an average day look like for you? <laughs> do you know, it's funny. I started trying to do this TikTok trend where I'll try and capture my average day. It's not worked. <laughs> I can see you laughing. <laughs> it's just so different <laughs> every single day. And then I thought, do you know what? I give up. Um, I'll capture it as I can. Um it depends on the weeks and it depends on the days, right? Um, at the moment, it's obviously the summer, so board meetings are in recess. Um, so, and those will pick back up in September. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I would say it's a mix of client engagement, as a mix of where our projects at. It's a mix of sending out pitch decks. It's a mix of reaching out to investors following up on others and making sure that those that are already secured are happy um, and um, yeah, and, 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 and thriving. So it just literally depends. And then of course, in between all of that, you try and fit in working out and I'm very much a runner slash do yoga. You try and sleep properly, you try and eat properly and then you try and catch up with friends and family um, that never works out as you would, or at least for me, it doesn't always work as balanced as I would like to, but 
trying to fit all of that in. And I think I've gotten to a phase where I am no longer rewarding that consistently busy lifestyle, you know, and just knowing that it's a marathon and not a race. Um, yeah. It's probably something that we're going to be doing for the next 10 years and trying to burn yourself out while doing that is inefficient for everybody involved. So take it as a day at a time, have that to-do list, tick it off, and then tomorrow is another day. And then, go on now. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just about to say, uh, Elsa, in terms of um, just starting out with your career and all the skills that you picked up um, along your journey, what would you say are the three skills uh, or traits that you've picked up on your journey that's helped to make you the success that you are today? Ooh, three skills. I would say consistently learning. And that by that, I literally mean continuously putting yourself out there and that could be formally or informally clearly I've done that formally um through all my education well formal education but yeah. I would say that the entrepreneurial ventures that I've gone through have taught me as as much so and I continue to do this so for example yesterday I had an interview for the Quantic um, MBA business school now whether I get in I guess we'll find out at some point um, but it's just continuously putting yourself out there to continuously learning um, two I would say adaptability um, you have to be able to go with the flow I think we've happened we've seen that with COVID everyone had to pivot change find different ways but that is literally your everyday life as a business um, owner especially in entrepreneurship and really for successful life um, you have to be able to pivot and I would say thirdly is people, right? Relationships. People do business with people. You might be competent, but if someone doesn't like you, they will not do business with you and they will not succeed with you. And I think sometimes we think competence can overshadow likability or overshadow being an arrogant piece of work, <laughs> but yeah. it cannot. Um, so I think it's just being able to build those relationships and leverage your networks and just be a nice person. So, yeah. And, and where, 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 do you, where would you like Soka Data to be in the next five years? Oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> Soka Data will be launched. Um, and um, in five years, it would be working with pharma and biotech companies. And you can think of... We can go as big as the J&Js, the Novartis, the um, AstraZeneca's and being able to support them with access to data um, in their clinical trial research. Well, not just clinical trial, I keep saying clinical trial, but just uh, preclinical research and then obviously clinical trial research as well. Um, it would be engaging with communities. I say that the goal is to have over a million data points from Black and ethnic minority communities on the platform so that before any drug or any vaccine is being sent to market, the question in pharma and biotech minds is, has it been run through circa data? And that is the, have we included data points from these communities and then it would have engaged with different communities um, around the world as well global majority as i always say um in engaging to want to engage with the biomedical space and involved in biomedical data research yeah sorry i didn't realize i was on mute so how soon can we see the will the platform be launched is it, sure. is it coming later this year or is it next year? 
you're pushing you're pushing for deadlines now (laughs) you're you're waiting and you know that i'm clearly holding back on a lot of things (laughs) how far can i go (laughs) i would say can can, can, can we get can we get the first reveal on the cvbb podcast Maybe we'll say that when it's when it's about to be launched, I'll come back here and say when it's when it will be launched. But um, it's all being yeah developed at the moment. Um, but the goal is to have it um launched by next year. I can say that now. Q one, Q four next year, we will see. <laughs> well, we'll we'll be keeping our eyes peeled peeled on this, Elsa. So we're about to go into the the, the bonus part of the CBBB podcast where we ask free fun questions well they are fun one of them's quite serious for me though one of them is i'm gonna go into the serious one first elsa and i will be judging you on um the answer here i'm worried (laughs) should pineapple be on a pizza no absolutely no that's an easy easy one (laughs) brilliant well, we've had some people say pineapple belongs on a pizza. And no. I'm, I've almost had to shut the podcast down <laughs> to get the other questions because, yeah, it's uh, for me, it sh- just shouldn't be on a pizza. Um, so, obviously, in terms of your experience, then, where has been the most interesting place that you've traveled to and why? Travel to, in terms of experience, um, I would say Cape Town. South Africa and I say that because it's such an interesting mix of the culture the history um the potential the hopes and dreams that you still see in the context of appetite and how it's transitioned to what it is to date um yeah so I'll probably say that's the most interesting place and that is very much from a intellectual level so the possibilities are endless. There's so much potential there um, in terms of the people, the companies and all of that, entrepreneurship, um, and even the government sort of supports it to a certain level. Um, from, a, from a geographical landscape, I love swimming and I love hiking. It's the best place for anyone who wants to do both, by the way, putting it out there for anyone listening. And also I love wine, so you can do the beautiful wine tours. Um, and um yeah, it just has a different feel that I would say that's the most interesting bit. That that is that is quite funny because I was having a chat with somebody yesterday um at a networking event and they were telling me that I need to go to Cape Town. I need to go to South Africa because what can I say? The universe is lining up for you <laughs> to clearly go. So I need to pack my bags and go over there. Like I said, it's, it, it's so beautiful. Uh, like the, 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 you can live a much better life in South Africa than in uh, in rainy old Manchester. Um, so no, that, that's quite interesting. That's, that's quite funny. And then the third question I'd ask, if you could have any superpower, which superpower would you choose? Read minds. Oh, why read minds? Interesting. Mm-hmm. I can change and influence absolutely everything. Can you imagine that you're pitching your business and you can already hear the questions that this investor is asking and you can <laughs> change everything, unshake everything on the spot? <laughs> I think well, you, you, you probably, go on. No, I think that that's, it's, 
I think I find minds very, very fascinating, right? I'm very much an intellectual person, sexual as well. And I love having these kind of conversations and debates. So I just think it would be very interesting to just sit there and wonder, what is this person thinking? But for me, the personal gain, I'm sorry, guys. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm hustling in these streets. <laughs> I need to be able to see how I can get more money out of investors or out of clients. So, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Would you actually be doing any work or would you just be doing funding rounds every single day trying to get trying to get more money? No, no, of course not. But it's just like the whole series A, B, C, D, here we keep going. Elsa world's first trillionaire, and everyone's like, oh my god, how did she do it? <laughs> no, but imagine the kind of value you'd be providing, right? Because you know, sometimes you're like even selling to a client and you're trying to answer questions and you're preempting questions. But you'd be able to sell so much value and be able to package what all our businesses into a way that the person you're talking to completely relates to. Brilliant, it's done. Done deal. We'll have no more walls. We'll have look, sort it. <laughs> sort the world out with reading minds. <laughs> there you go. As long as you're not in the same room as like multiple people and you just get so you're just trying to read too many thoughts and you're just like, right, I just want to focus on that one person. Um, yeah, yeah, I should that, caveat that then because yeah, I want to be able to switch it on and switch it off and be like, what is, <laughs> today? What is now thinking today? And then turn it off. And then tomorrow we do Blair. <laughs> so yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much, Elsa, for being on the CBBB podcast. Before before we completely wrap it up, is there anything that you that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to tell our audience now? No, no, nothing. No, no, no. Yeah. And and for, and if anybody wants to follow you on your journey, where can people go to to go to follow you? Sure. So I'm at Elsa Zakang on basically all platforms. So Instagram, um, LinkedIn, it's Dr. Elsa Zakang. Um, Twitter at Elsa Zakang. So yeah, okay. follow the journey. And 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 what about Soka Data? Can anyone can they follow you on Soka Data? Is that is that live yet? No. In terms of it has a website. So Soka it has Data a website. website. So it's soka-data.com, but it's not yet been on any social media platforms. But that again is the strategy that's in place. So we'll get. So guys, you've heard it. There's not there's no social media yet, but head on to the website and go and see, uh, go find out some of the cool stuff uh, that they're doing. So yeah. Thank you, Elsa, again for being on the CBBB podcast, and we definitely have to invite you back. Uh, maybe, maybe in a year's time, and see how everything's going. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Elsa. Take care. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Bye. 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 Niall, what did you think of today's guest? I thought Elsa today was really inspiring. She's basically following her dreams. Uh, she's always wanted to be a scientist. She's now filling a dream that's as a scientist, but now she's also gone on that entrepreneurial pathway. So she said that she's following essentially in the footsteps of her mother because her mother opened up like her own pharmacy business. And she's basically taken it in her stride and just grown to the point where she now she's got her own organization, Soccer Data, which I believe is going to be a massive success in the future. And what I also took is that the three skills, three main skills that Elsa's learned over the time as being an entrepreneur. So consistency, adaptability, 
and then people and relationships mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. important all those um, key skills are in, in terms of developing yourself as a business person or yeah. yourself. Yeah, no, it's obviously we've known Elsa for quite a number of years and it's, it's great to see the, the, the development, the trajectory she's gone on yeah. uh, since we first known her. So, yeah, I, I didn't know that she uh, grew, grew, yeah, it's interesting to know that, yeah, she grew up from a very early age wanting to be a scientist. And, you know, I think it's that importance of having role models. Yeah. So, obviously, a mom owning her own business and her dad, uh, they both, both of them being scientists have encouraged her to follow that pathway. And, you know, there's that little thing of that a lot of the women who end up in STEM careers all went to uh, all female schools or boarding schools. Yeah. And Elsa, you know, she's discovered that and she went to a uh, boarding school as well. So, and, you know, the little topics, the little conversations that we've had about how do we get more young girls from mixed schools to get involved within going down a STEM related career um, was a really good, 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 quick chat. It was good chat though. Um, and yeah, no, it's it just finding out more information about the biotech, bio, biomedical world, big pharma, and how, you know, it's interesting that they do discriminate, um, not purposely, but against, the, the, there's not enough clinical trials being done with people from um, different races. Uh, and then even at, well, you know, certain communities, a lot of black community, not getting involved in clinical trials because of, you know, mistrust and yeah, things fear like that. and whatnot. Yeah, from yeah. The, the past experiences and yeah. yeah, yeah. But how you know, her company is looking to change all that so that we can get. Uh, I think I believe she set herself a goal: one million, one million people. Yeah, million, uh, from yeah. backgrounds to be on that database and to be as, you know, for her company to be as big as AstraZeneca. Which I definitely think, you know, with Elsa being so determined, driven, and you know, passionate, I definitely think it, it can get there. Um, so I'm very excited to see where the future holds uh, for Elsa and her, and, her, and her business. And hopefully, they've not obviously not launched a product yet, but hopefully, maybe in a year's time, they've managed to raise the investment and they've launched. They've launched it, and then we can invite her back on the podcast to see how well she's doing. Really, be great to hear where Elsa is by this time, either next year or within the next uh, two years. But um, I think she's uh, on the right path at the moment, and uh, wish her all the best in her future um, ventures. Yeah, and so guys, if you really enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. We are on the following platforms. We're on Instagram. Twitter and TikTok at Get Me Motoring. And then we're on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube at The Blair Project. So if you're not, go and, go and subscribe to us on all of those major platforms and stay tuned for another exciting episode of the See Me, Be Me podcast. Take care. This is Blair and Niall signing up. If you've liked today's episode, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. The Blair Project is all is on all major social media platforms, including Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube at The Blair Project. We're also on Instagram, Twitter, and, and TikTok. Yes, we are on TikTok at Get Me Motoring. If you'd like to follow myself individually, I am on Instagram at Niall Henry and also LinkedIn. Uh, at Niall Henry as well.
And if you want to follow myself, I'm on Instagram as BlairHenry underscore 97 and also on um, LinkedIn as just BlairHenry. So we look forward to having you on the next episode. So stay tuned. Take care. Until next time.